Welcome to chapter 124 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson and together we've now reached the end of the Earl of Derby's second government. The one clear fact about its successor was that it would be liberal with a capital L. Following the historic meeting at Willis's rooms in June 1859, when Whigs, Radicals and Peelites joined forces to bring down Derby, the Liberal Party was fully launched. But just who would lead this Liberal government? Palmerston and Russell, the two big beasts of the Whigs, had agreed to serve under whichever of the two the Queen chose to head the next government. However, unattracted by either, she turned first to the Earl of Granville. The days when the monarch could choose a prime minister against the will of elected politicians were, however, over. Granville couldn't form a government without the support of Russell and Palmerston. In the end, reluctantly, the Queen called on Palmerston to form his second government. Pam was back. Already in 1855, when he formed his first administration, Palmerston had set a still unbroken record as the oldest man at 70 to receive his first appointment as British Prime Minister. Now he was approaching 75. His health wasn't what it had been, but his dynamism and capacity for hard work remained high. Russell stood by his word and agreed to serve under him, but he wanted a senior appointment as Foreign Secretary, which Pam granted him. Then there was Gladstone. Most of Gladstone's fellow Peelites, of whom there were few enough left in the House of Commons, had gone over to the Liberals. In the vote that brought down Derby's second ministry, Gladstone's friends Graham, Cardwell and Herbert, that's Sidney Herbert, the one we came across before as a close friend of Florence Nightingale's, had voted with the opposition. Gladstone, however, had sided with the government. Gladstone and Palmerston didn't really get on personally. Politically, however, little separated them any more. Even in 1858, Gladstone told Lord Aberdeen, in whose government he'd served, that he had no broad differences of principle from the party opposite. By 1859, Gladstone strongly agreed with Palmerston on two important questions. Italian independence and unity, they were both in favour, and further electoral reform in Britain, extending the right to vote, they were both against. Meanwhile, he'd won an enviable reputation as a competent minister and a dangerous opponent. Derby and Israeli had tried to tempt him into their government, which would have been a return to his conservative roots. Now, Palmerston also invited him to join his government, as Cardwell and Herbert already had. Palmerston needed Gladstone, partly like US President Lyndon Johnson a century later, because he preferred to have men of that calibre inside the tent pissing out, rather than outside the tent pissing in, but also because he needed his skill and competence. After four years in opposition, Gladstone was hankering for a chance to make things happen again. As he had put it himself, he must be a very bad minister indeed who does not do ten times the good to the country when he is in office than he would do when he is out of it. He decided to swallow his personal feelings towards Palmerston and join the government, though only if he was again appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer. Palmerston had wanted to reappoint his previous Chancellor, George Cornwall Lewis, but quickly moved him to the Home Office instead to accommodate Gladstone. The former Conservative Gladstone therefore now definitively threw his lot in with the Liberals. 
His strange vote in favour of Derby's government turned out to be his last in support of the Conservatives. Palmerston also attempted to convince the radical Richard Cobden to join as President of the Board of Trade. After he'd lost his seat in Palmerston's sweeping general election win of 1857, Cobden had focused on work outside Parliament. He won a new seat, unopposed, while still in the US, and Palmerston's invitation to join the government was waiting for him as he returned home. Cobden felt his differences from Palmerston had been too great to serve in his government, but he agreed that he would aid it as he could while it keeps out of war and acts decently on the reform question. Cobden's demand about war was apt. Foreign affairs would dominate Palmerston's second premiership as they had dominated most of his career, and that mainly meant war. He stayed out of most, but one he couldn't because he'd inherited it the Second Opium War with China. It flared up again in 1860 and the US got involved this time, bombarding and destroying several Chinese forts outside Canton, today's Guangzhou. The British and French, allied in this war as they had been in Crimea, then attacked and sacked Beijing, burning the Imperial Summer Palace. The Russians, without actually intervening in the fighting, took advantage of it to force China to hand over large amounts of territory in the northwest and the northeast. You may remember the imperial commissioner in Canton, Ye Ming Chen. He tried to enforce Chinese law in Chinese territory, galling behaviour that had provoked Britain into starting the war. At the end, he was taken as a prisoner to Calcutta, where he starved himself to death. What the war achieved was that the Chinese removed the prohibition on British, French and American dealers pushing opium into their country. Unsurprisingly, the Chinese give prominence to this episode in their school history syllabuses. Equally unsurprisingly, the British, French and Americans don't. Now let's turn to the wars Palmerston didn't join. The first of these, which broke out in 1859, the year before the sacking of Beijing, came to be known as the Second Italian War of Independence. The king of Piedmont Sardinia, one of the many states into which Italy was divided, was trying to turn them into a single, unified nation under his rule. The French sent a large force to support him in action against the Austrian Empire, which still held substantial northern Italian territories. There were two appallingly bloody battles at Magenta and Solferino. Henri Dunant from Switzerland was a witness at the second of these and was so shocked not just by the carnage but by the lack of care for the wounded afterwards that when he got home to Geneva he started a campaign that led to the launching of the Red Cross. Its sign, a red cross on a white background, is simply the Swiss flag with its colours reversed. The same campaign later led to the signing of the first Geneva Convention governing the protection of medical personnel and the wounded in a war zone. In Britain, despite widespread public support for the Italians, the war divided opinion among politicians right up to the level of Palmerston's government, which opted for strict neutrality. The campaign in Italy did, however, lead to growing British concern over French power, particularly after Piedmont honoured the deal it had made for Napoleon III's support and handed over to France its province of Savoy, together with the city of Nice and its surrounding area. That second concession was particularly painful to one of the great heroes of Italian unification, Giuseppe Garibaldi, who was a native of Nice. 
What especially worried Britain about France at this time was that it was rebuilding its sea power, to the point that many began to fear that it might soon outgrow the Royal Navy. Many ministers, and above all Palmerston himself, became obsessed with reinforcing the country's defences against France, despite their recent military experiences as allies of the French in Crimea and then in China. They demanded more ships for the navy and fortresses along the coast. While Gladstone had overcome his personal animosity towards Palmerston to the point of being able to join his government, and the two men remained courteous towards each other while they worked together, their simple differences in temperament stoked continuing tensions between them. Part of those tensions was caused precisely by the qualities that made Gladstone an attractive candidate for the post of Chancellor of the Exchequer. Gladstone was a rigid disciplinarian when it came to government finance and kept opposing Palmerston's and his allies more extravagant spending initiatives. That included the demands for, in his view, excessive defence preparations. The fear of France gave Richard Cobden an opportunity to pull off a remarkable coup from outside government since he'd turned down Palmerston's invitation to head the Board of Trade and against the trend towards war. His friend and fellow radical John Bright spoke out against the huge expenditure on defence against France, proposing instead that the two countries should reinforce their peaceful relations by agreeing to trade freely with each other. The speech was noticed by a French parliamentarian, Michel Chevalier. He wrote to Cobden suggesting they explore a possible trade agreement between the two countries to help boost their economies and at the same time lessen the chances of war. Cobden reacted with enthusiasm and took the proposal to Gladstone. He, delighted with an idea that could reduce defence spending, threw his backing behind it. The governments fell in line as ministers on both sides of the channel were persuaded with little reluctance that the initiative made sense. On the 29th of January 1860, what historians have called the world's first modern trade agreement, informally dubbed the Cobden-Chevalier Treaty, was signed. So, two men, neither a government minister, left their names on a treaty their government signed. It didn't need to free trade, since many tariffs on commerce between Britain and France remained in place, though it greatly reduced them. While it remained in force, both countries derived considerable economic benefit from the increased volume of trade. It may also have helped prevent war, as its initiators had hoped. Though they'd fought war after war against each other throughout the 18th century and right up to Waterloo in 1815, France and Britain have never come to blows and have indeed rather gone to war as allies than as enemies ever since. It's worth noting, though, that what had happened is that the British government had ducked to war with an adversary who it had begun to fear. In the mid-19th century, Britain was the world's preeminent naval power sitting on top of a huge international empire, one that hadn't even finished growing yet. But already its military power was beginning to ebb. The fear of France was a symptom of its loss of authority. That was even more dramatically displayed in another war that broke out three years later in 1863. Its leading player was a nation that Britain hadn't yet identified as a potential enemy and which would, within a few decades, turn out to be far more dangerous to it than France, Prussia. The King of Denmark was also Duke of two duchies further south, Schleswig and Holstein, with majority German populations. 
When the Danish king tried to strengthen his hold on Schleswig, the German confederation, whose most powerful member was Prussia, reacted with anger. As Prussia's relations with Denmark worsened, Palmerston told Parliament on the 23rd of July 1863 that he was convinced that if any violent attempt were made to overthrow Denmark's rights, those who made the attempt would find in the result that they would not be Denmark alone with which they would have to contend. Strong words, but in December 1863, German troops occupied the southern duchy, Holstein. And on the 1st of February 1864, Prussian troops with their Austrian allies marched into Schleswig. They quickly overcame Danish resistance in an advance that took them right into Denmark itself. And what did Britain do? It organised a peace conference in London, which debated uselessly between April and June 1864, before breaking up with the war still continuing. The preliminaries of a peace treaty between Denmark and the German allies were signed on the 1st of August 1864. Both Schleswig and Holstein, including many ethnic Danes, were handed over to Prussia and Austria. It turned out that, despite Palmerston's bold words, it was only Denmark with which the aggressors found themselves contending. After Waterloo, Britain had emerged as the most powerful nation in Europe. It could dictate terms to others. It could act as a mediator to prevent wars, as Palmerston had shown earlier in his career. For instance, in 1831, when he pushed France on the one hand and Russia, Prussia and Austria on the other into a peaceful settlement over Belgian independence from the Netherlands. Well, under 35 years later, that happy state for Britain, and in particular for Palmerston, had suffered a major diplomatic blow. Prussia, with Austria in tow, had wanted to secure Schleswig and Holstein for the emerging German nation it planned to lead, and had been able to impose its will without Britain doing more than talking piously about a mediated peace. The writing was on the wall for Britain. But, as a friend of mine once said to me, when you have your back to the wall, it's difficult to read the writing on it. Another and bigger war would make the writing on the wall more threatening still, though Britain, ploughing ahead with building its colossal world empire, was still failing to turn around and read it. That war was happening across the Atlantic, though its impact on Britain was far from insignificant. We'll pick all that up next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>